Hello, my name is Donnie Smith, and I'm the pastor here at Ascension Christian Center in Apopka, Florida. I hope this message changes, impacts, and challenges you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you enjoy the message, you can connect with us on our website, Facebook, or Instagram at Ascension Christian Center. Thank you, and enjoy. I'm just going to give you a little backdrop of this uh not really a story, but I'll give you the backdrop of the writer. In the book of Acts, uh, Luke actually wrote the book of Acts. Luke, which was one of the disciples, one of the apostles under Jesus' ministry, he was a physician. Everybody say he was a physician. He wrote the book of Acts. Now, as he's recording this, what I'm about to read right now is, was a phrase that James said. Okay, So this came from the mouth of James, but it was pinned down by the writer Luke. And it's a very short, very short verse. It's actually only two verses. And I, and I love this phrase. It says in chapter 16, this was God speaking under, and it was James saying it, but it was God speaking through James. Does that make sense? God was speaking to him. Everybody say that God was speaking through James prophetically. And he says this, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. And I'll read verse 17 now. It says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord Even all the Gentiles, meaning you and me, who are called by my name, says the Lord. See, it's God talking. Who does all these things. You may have your seats. If it's okay today, um, I'm going to be a little bit more teachy. Okay, is that okay with everybody? Sometimes I'm a little preachy. A little preachy sometimes, but today I'm going to teach you just, just get my other mic. Can I get that other mic? I really want no distractions here. Maybe we have this picture. So, so first of all, everybody say the tabernacle of David. Now there were, there were a couple different tabernacles in the Bible. This is really, really important. And believe it or not, this is going to apply largely to your life. In my life, there was three different tabernacles in the Bible. The first was constructed. How many remember the children of Israel? It was the Jewish nation. They went to Egypt under Joseph's, uh, under, his, um, under his ambassadorship. And when Joseph died, the children of Israel were held captive by the Egyptians. And the children of Israel built bricks for Pharaoh and constructed his kingdom. Say his kingdom. Then Moses goes on the run. Moses goes into the wilderness for 40 years. He's running from God. He was the backslidden preacher of the Old Testament. Okay, so he's running from God and he has this experience called the burning bush. I want you to talk back to me. Say the burning bush. And God tells him, I've heard the oppression of my people And I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people, let my people go. The short story is God sends 10 plagues through the hands 
of Moses. There were miraculous signs and wonders. Pharaoh finally says, uncle, and lets God's people go. And they go into the wilderness. Now, this was only supposed to take 11 days for them to get from Egypt into the promised land. Did anybody know that? It only should have taken, historians have tracked this. I mean, it's pretty practical, even if you Google it. From Egypt to the promised land in Jericho, where they were going to go, should have only taken them 11 days. You know how long they spent walking around in the wilderness? 40 years. Look at somebody and say, obey God quickly. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time doing your own thing. It just, it takes a whole lot longer. Listen, I have to just park there for just one minute. Listen, God's will is hard. He said the way to life is, is, is narrow. It's, it's, it's a tight way and it, it's very tough, but it leads to life. So I'd rather do the tough things that God calls me to do versus do my own thing and wander around in the wilderness and never get to the promised land. Look at somebody and say, obey God. All right, I said I wasn't going to preach. It was tempting. So here's what they do. This is the first church that's ever constructed. When we get to the book of Acts, actually that's the first official church. But what they do is they construct this tent-like thing. Those of you who like camping would have really liked this thing. It was really fancy. It, I, I won't really go into the construct of it, but I'm going to tell you the three different components that it was made out of, okay? But it was basically, it was called the tent of meeting. Everybody say the tent of meeting. Or the wilderness tabernacle. I drew that. I did a pretty good job, didn't I? I didn't. I'm just totally kidding. That's Google. It was, it was made of three different compartments, okay? There was an outer court, which is that courtyard there. And there was an inner court. And then there was a holy of holies, an area where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. I'll tell you about these different uh, areas in just a moment. But what was it used for? It was used to perform some holy sacraments. It's where they would bring the lamb once a year. They would slay the lamb. They would bring it inside of the Holy of Holies, but only the priest was allowed in that area just once a year. Say once a year. Only he was, uh, and listen, if he had sin on his life, God would kill him. Because the Ark of the Covenant, I'll, I'll tell you about that in just a moment. The Ark of the Covenant, it looked something like this. This is a replica that my wife purchased for me. I'll let you guys come see it a little later. It's tiny, but it's, it's really neat, and I'll let you see what's inside later. But the Ark of the Covenant dwelt in the most holy of place, the Holy of Holies, because the glory of God literally dwelt over it. The Ten Commandments were inside. I'll get to that part. But the glory of God was there. And what the priest would do, he would come in once a year for the sins of everybody and sprinkle the blood from the lamb on the Ark of the Covenant. And for that year, all the sins of the people were forgiven. That's why Jesus came. And we don't have to do this once a year because Jesus died once and for all. His blood was shed once and for all, for all of our sins, just once, not once a year. Somebody say amen. Thank you for the cross. So there was an outer court, there was an inner court, and there was a holy of holies. And so once a year, they would come and they would perform these sacraments, religiosity, going through the religious motions. This is why Jesus came, because he wanted to, he wanted to close the gap between religion and relationship with us. 
He didn't want us to just go through religious motions. He wanted to be close to us. The problem with the Holy of Holies, there was no real problem with it, but that's why Jesus tore the veil from top to bottom when he was crucified because he wanted everybody to have access, not just the priest once a year. He wanted you to have access. Look at somebody beside you and say, he wanted you to have access. And so this Ark of the Covenant what was inside of it? First of all, the most important was the glory of God dwelt on top of it. There are, there are uh, places throughout Scripture that says there was a pillar of fire above it. In other words, outside of the courtyard, you could literally see the glory of God dwelling over this place. Okay? But inside, there were, there were three different things. Moses' broken tablets, which were the Ten Commandments. Say the Ten Commandments. There was Aaron's rod. I don't have to have the time to go into all of this, but inside of it was Aaron's rod that budded. It was a stick that budded a leaf, miraculously. And then there was the manna that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness. He fed them daily with manna. Say manna. All those components were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why is that important? Because we get all the way to the book of Acts after all of this happens, and you have James saying that God is going to restore the walls that have been broken. He's going to restore the tabernacle that had been torn down. He was going to restore the ruins. Now, if we fast forward a little bit, the children of Israel come into the promised land. God fulfills his promise to them. But then the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. The Holy Grail, they called it. Say the Holy Grail. It gets stolen because the children of Israel were not obedient. So it gets taken from them. Fast forward, David takes his kingship. Everybody know who King David is? He's the guy who wrote the Psalms, the book of Psalms. And he becomes king, and the first act that he did, he didn't build a building, he didn't do anything else. What did he do? He goes after the enemy, and he, 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 gets, he, he restores and he, gets, he takes back the Ark of the Covenant and he goes and he creates something called the Tabernacle of David. Say the Tabernacle of David. And so because he was called to restore what had been lost. Amen? I'll, I want to tell you a quick story because I've been exposed to the building industry now for two decades. I work full time for those of you who don't know. And for the past two decades, I've learned a lot in the building industry. And the way that building is constructed now is much, much different. Even though I'm not that old, I get the privilege to work on a lot of historic properties. How many remember who uh, Mr. Rogers is from years ago? We have been able to like restore his old home where he lived. He used to go to uh, teach at Rollins College, so we restored that house. A lot of old historic ones. I've even done uh, some as late as the early uh, uh, like teens like the original Orlando Regional that was established, I think, in 1915, somewhere around there. And uh, the construction back then was much different. I mean, the walls were made out of plaster. Like these days, your teenager get mad, put their hand through the door. Well, not these old houses. They would break their hand. If they tried to kick the wall or something like that, they would break their toe. So the construction materials were much more expensive, a lot more labor-intensive to install, but the houses, structurally speaking, were much more solid. And so um, for me, I love, um, I love older houses, and I actually have a little bit of prejudice 
and uh, dispositions towards newer houses, even though I have kind of a newer house. It was built in 2015. But even now, like there's areas in my house where the ceiling is like leaking. And I'm like, I go into some of these older houses and they've been standing for almost 100 years with absolutely no problems. But I love open floor plans. But I, but I, but I found two different defects. Now, don't, don't let me lose you in this. This is important what I'm sharing with you. There's two different defects, two different dispositions I have towards um, two-story houses. Number one, two-story houses, unless you're paying lots of money, do not have grand open floor plans. And if they do, you're paying a lot of money. And all you do on a second story is you go up the stairs. There's a small 20-foot hallway, and it goes to all the rooms. So you lose wide open spaces. The second reason that I don't really like two stories is simply because the plumbing runs above the rafters or the ceiling line. And there's just no way that you're going to have piping above your ceiling line and not uh, and the plumbing not eventually leak. Have you ever gone into a two-story and you see either some kind of water? I see somebody already, already raising their hands. And there are several different scenarios and defects and, and, and things that I can just bring up about the building industry where it's kind of defected. And the problem with the building industry is it takes them about 20 years to figure out that they've constructed something wrong. And I'm one of those guys who come behind them and I fix some of those things, right? So that's what I do in my industry. And there are several different scenarios that I'm finding out. And, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like church. Like we've been doing things a certain way for a certain amount of time. And it has taken time for some of those defects to rise to the top. And this, this is what God is saying through James, penned by Luke. He's saying something here. He's saying, after these things, in other words, in the end days, I'm going to step in and I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen down. Can I tell you, I, to, to say that all the building materials in the building industry are wrong, my brother Matt knows, they're not all wrong. That wouldn't be fair to say that. Just like it wouldn't be fair to say that everything that the church has built now would be wrong because it's not all wrong. It's funny because me and my friend Rick, we debated about this uh, a few years back. And we were talking about whether or not God was going to do away with you know, the church as we know it. I said, listen, God is never going to do away with the church fully, but there are certain overhauls that have to be made if we're going to move into the next phase of what God has. Come on, somebody ought to say amen to that. There are some defects, but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some things that God still loves and appreciates, although there are some things that need to probably go. The problem is, is it does take time for those defects to rise to the surface. Amen? So today I want to preach this message entitled, Rebuilding the Ruins. Everybody say, Rebuilding the Ruins. Yeah, yeah, me and Rick were talking. I said, listen, um, God is not going to build the back of the church on barbershop bishops and parking lot preachers. Anybody who's been church for any length of time knows exactly what I mean. There's, God's never, we're never, because he's calling the body of Christ, right? He's not calling us to hide away in our homes. Although there may come a time when persecution starts, when and if that really truly starts, we may have to hunker down a little bit, but God is after the body of Christ at large. Jesus wants, there's a special type of presence that God release, releases in the assembly when we assemble together. You ever realize why you can't take church home, that type of presence home with you, like privately, like to that degree? Am I the only one? 
Like you're like, Lord, I want to put that presence in my back pocket, what just happened at church today, but you can't. It's not that you can't have that because you can't have it to a degree. It's because that God releases a special part of himself, a special degree of his presence when we gather corporately because we're supposed to gather corporately. Look at somebody and say, don't stay home from church next week. All right, so listen, before I lay this out again, I want to be a little bit teachy this morning. I'm going to probably get it really bad from Tamaki later. She's like a, a mini theologian back there. It's making me nervous. Before I discuss uh, this, I want to chronologically lay out kind of what happened in the wilderness. I kind of went over briefly the fact that the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. They had this uh, construct. Can we put it back up? Uh, the, the, the tabernacle. Uh, in the wilderness, or uh, the tent of meetings, they would also call it. So they come out of Egypt, they enter into the promised land finally. However, however eventually this, the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen, and they no longer have this tent. And then you have David who comes along, and he builds something called the Tabernacle of David. David wants to really build the major house of the Lord. He's like, Lord, I want to build this. But David made a couple of mistakes so God makes a deal with David. He says, look, there's blood on your hands. You've slept with Bathsheba. You've made some wrongdoings. You even killed your, you had your best friend killed. I cannot allow you to build the main house, the temple, but your son's gonna do it, Solomon. How many remember Solomon's temple? So David passes away after the tabernacle is built. It was, it, David's tabernacle kind of looked like the tent of meeting a little bit, but there's a major difference, big difference. Everybody say there was a difference. And I'll go over that difference between David's tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and as well as uh, how Solomon constructed the temple, okay? So David passes on, uh, Solomon builds the temple, and so Solomon constructs possibly the, the, the most, uh, how shall I say it, the most extravagant infrastructure ever known to man. He was the richest man in the world. Does everybody know that? Even still. If it were uh, tallied up today how much it cost, it would be billions of dollars, the construct. I mean, things were laid with gold. There was uh, marble. I mean, you name it. This place was absolutely massive. You should Google it to take a look. It was beautiful. So 500 years before Jesus is born, Solomon's, Solomon's temple gets destroyed again. Okay, so there's this huge cycle that the children of Israel continue to go through. And then Jesus is born, and by this time, they have a new temple. The only thing is that when Solomon's temple was destroyed, that looked like what was just up on the screen, but on steroids, uh, when Jesus comes along, the temple's there because we, it's recorded uh, in the Gospels when Jesus was 12, 12 years old, he went to the temple. Okay, so there was a temple. The only issue was the ark wasn't there. Because when it was destroyed in Solomon's days, the Ark of the Covenant never returned. It would never be seen again. Some historians think, or some archaeologists think that they have found remnants of it, but it hasn't been proven necessarily. And then lastly, Jesus Christ is crucified. He makes a prophecy. He says the temple's going to be destroyed, that last temple, and it got destroyed. But somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D., 
okay? It gets destroyed. And so, so now we, we fast forward and we're finding ourselves. And so we see all these temples built. That's about three or four temples rebuilt. You have the tent of meeting or the uh, wilderness tabernacle. Then you have uh, David who constructs this, um, the David's tabernacle. And then you have Solomon who builds a temple. And then it gets rebuilt after that by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Come on, is everybody tracking with me? Come on, follow me. We're going somewhere. Look at somebody and say, don't let them lose you. So, so now even still, 70 years plus after Jesus Christ dies, we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Somewhere between historians believe 60 or 70 years. Luke pins this phrase. After this, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Do you wanna know the difference between David's tabernacle? Well, let me just say this. In the wilderness tabernacle, it was all about sacraments and sacrifice, duty, going through those religious motions. Let me just ask you this. What was David, this will give you a hint. I want you to work with me. Come on, talk back to me today, okay? Where was David and what was David doing when God first called him and identified him? He was a shepherd. What was he doing? He was tending to the flock, playing what? A harp, writing songs. He was a worshiper. Right? So when David gets called by God, and what God call him? A man after my own. David was a worshiper. And so David constructs something called David's tabernacle. Now here was the difference. In the actual wilderness tabernacle, things were very quiet. Like in the Catholic church, very quiet. Nothing wrong with the Catholic. My, mom, my mother was a Catholic. I still appreciate the uh, clergy callers and all of that stuff. I just, you know, I don't know about all the standing up and sitting down. It would hurt my legs after a while. I'm teasing. You guys were supposed to laugh. I love the Catholics. So there in the wilderness tabernacle and in the temple, they would go through religious motions. But David constructed it much differently, almost to a point where it could have been controversial back then. What David did that was so much different, he had the Ark of the Covenant, yes, but when you walked into the, the, his tabernacle, he had what was called Levites sitting by. Everybody say Levites. You know what Levites were? This is how, why the church was made. These worship, this worship team that stands here this morning and that you see on Sunday mornings, they were the Levites who were inside the sanctuary. And what they would do, they were singers and they sang to the Lord, but listen, not just on Sunday morning. You guys complain, some of y'all complain about two and a half hours. They had worship 24-7. It never, the fire, the Bible says, never went out. So the Levites were the worship leaders or the worshipers at that time. And then David had scribes. Am I getting this right, Tamaki? You can correct me later. The scribes would sit by with pen and paper. So when you're reading the book of Psalms, you read it but they were being sung. That's why it's called psalms. Psalms give the, gives the connotation that they were songs being written to the Lord. They were songs. Everybody say they were songs. 
So, so Levites were those who led worship, and then there were scribes who sat by and would pin down what David, and of course, it was somewhere recorded by Moses as well and others throughout the book of Psalms. So the, but that original tabernacle was quiet, but the tabernacle that God wants to construct in these last days isn't going to be like what we do on Sunday morning church services, quiet and going through the religious motions. God is first and foremost when he comes back, and even now we see his spirit moving in a special, in a very unique way, but one of the main ingredients is going to be that his presence is going to be among a people that are worshipers. Because God, in these last days, that's exactly what he's doing, is raising up worshipers. And this is, this is the main formula that God is going to use in this new awakening that's about to hit the earth. I said that this is the main formula, because you know what worship does? Unlike sermons, you can build a star out of somebody who preaches a, a sermon. But when it comes to worship, there's only one star. There's only one that can be elevated, and his name is not Donnie. His name is not Rick or Matt or anybody on the front row or the second row. His name is Jesus. And this is what God's building plan is to be, is to raise up a company of people who worship him. Do you know why in the, old, in the New Testament, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, isn't it funny how when you look at the scriptures, the Bible says the veil was rent from top to bottom? You know what? I, the reason I believe God rent it from top to bottom? We say it was because Jesus gives us full access, and I believe that, Rick. But do you know why I really and truly believe it? That God allowed that veil to be rent from top to bottom because he wanted to show all of the people of Israel that there had been no ark, there had been no presence in there for 500 years. They had been playing church. They had been going through the religious motions because it's only true worship. The tabernacle, come on, I'm preaching now. It was the tabernacle of David where they lifted up worship to God that brought the presence of God into the room. And if I could be frank and just preach just for a second this morning, you can go to any service anywhere in Orlando and, and, and we, we, we see this and I'm not knocking, I'm not being overcritical, God forgive me. But one thing that sets God's house apart from every other house, it's not just playing instruments. It's not the preaching of his word. It's not fellowship. It is the very presence of God where people get together and worship until God breaks through and comes in with a wave of his presence. Come on, that can do what no sermon can do. That can do what no message can do. That can do what no man, no woman, no boy, no girl, no infrastructure, no amount of finances, no amount of outreaches can do. And I believe that God in the last days, he says in the last days, I'll pour out my sermons. Did he say in the last days I'm going to pour out more fellowship? Oh God, I'm preaching good this morning. He didn't say I'm going to make more, you know, I'm going to you know, pour out just finances. No, he said in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old men would dream dreams. And this is what brings the presence of God is not religiosity. It's not religious motions. We thank God for the old covenant. We thank God for the Ark of the Covenant. But all these things were, they were shadows of what God really wanted. Shadows. If it were me, you know what I would have said? I would have constructed in the last day, Matt. I would have constructed Solomon's temple. God could have chose any of those things. I want to restore the tent of meeting. The glory of God dwelt among it. In, in, a, in a pillar of fire. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild the ruins of Solomon's temple. He didn't say any of that. 
He said, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. I wish I had a picture of the construct. It was made of just sheets and wood and had the, had the Ark of the Covenant in it. Yes, but, but here's, the reason, here's what set it apart. Because I thought to myself, God, why did you choose that? Why not Solomon's? I mean, I like to live in something that's golden and has walls of jasper and, you know, floors that are made out of gold. I mean, wouldn't you? If you had the choice, would you pick a hut or would you pick a temple that was made of billions of dollars? But see how God chooses? Man, don't choose the same way. And when, when I look out over Christianity, and I don't do this with a critical spirit, we, the people, have chosen to do church like that. We, the people, have chosen to continue to go through the religious motions without his presence. We have, we have built the constructs. We have got all the little accruedments down, yet without one key ingredient. Worship. Worship. You know, in the Bible, it says that the eyes of the Lord... Even this morning, did you know that? The eyes of the Lord are seeking hearts that are truly his. Worshipers. Many of us wonder why we're still struggling and we've been to church for so long. Because there's something that worship can do that religion cannot. And I might just say this. I might just say this as well. That, that no prayer meeting has been able to deal with. That no prayer line that you've got and all the dozens of prayer lines you've been in. I'm talking about worship because something happens in worship that is life-changing and transforming. It was a couple of months ago. Can I tell you a quick story? I'm going somewhere. A couple of months ago, I was Googling. I don't get much free time. I wish I did. I work full-time, and I do this full-time. So I don't have much time, but when I do get time... I like to have fun. And so I started Googling. You know, I had the Lord put it on my heart to buy a boat for the church. We, we use it for men's outings. The ladies are jealous. But until they learn how to drive it, y'all can't borrow it. I'll drive it for y'all. She said, I'll drive it. We got a driver. So I was Googling. And I love, where I'm in my element, my mother told me, I didn't know why I loved water so much in the outdoors, and seafood. And she told me the other day, she said, I had you out on the water when you were six months old, in the boat and feeding me seafood. So I have a real, I, I feel like I'm really in my element when I'm in the wilderness, like on the water, camping, all of those things. I love seclusion. Like a lot of people get bored. I don't get time to be bored. So when I get bored, it's like luxury. Does that make sense? Does that sound funny? Bored is luxury to me. Like I want to be bored because I don't get that opportunity. Jane knows what I'm talking about. Like to have any free time, that just mainly doesn't happen. Well, I, I Googled, I said, what is the best place to go on a boat? And I was a little nervous because I don't, didn't want to put it in the ocean because it's got waves and, you know, sharks and stuff. But uh, I Googled it and something popped up called Edmont Key. Has anybody ever heard of Edmont Key? Edmont Key? So Edmont Key You've, you've never heard of it, but it's a really important uh, landmark because right off of the coast, uh, which is on the west side, um, it was Tampa Bay's, it was an island about right off the peak of um, Fort DeSoto. Anybody ever heard of Fort DeSoto? It's right off the peak of the coast, 
And it was a large lighthouse that was constructed in 1857. It was a war fort that would fight the Spanish when they would try to come into the ports or, or pirates and things like that. So there was, war would go on. And this island is where they built prisons. They built large weaponry. But it still stands today. So I took the boat over crystal blue water. I took it over and navigated about 15 minutes off the coast. And I went and I explored the island. It's a famous island. People go there. You should go see it. They even send a ferry over a couple times a day. And uh, I went to the island. It was beautiful. It's inhabited by lots of turtles and things like that. Uh, all the old jail cells. I mean, if you don't like spiders, you know, just be careful, ladies. But uh, anyway, the, all the old bars are still there from the early 1800s. And so I went in there, and, and I thought to myself, why doesn't somebody, like, overhaul this and bring it back to life? And because of the war for it, it's still standing, but it's just in ruins. And, and I, I started thinking about how that kind of relates to this scripture that I'm reading, about how after this, God's going to return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And, and I started to think about how it relates to Edmont Key's ruins. Although it's beautiful, has lots of potential, because God's saying, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle. But I thought to myself, are you going to use your own hands, Lord? But, but generally, when God moves in the earth and rebuilds something, he doesn't do it on his own. I said he doesn't do it on his own. He uses people. And so while everybody is on Edmont Key enjoying all of its beauty and its ruins, when I look out over the church, I, I, it's almost like I feel God's heart for the church. It's like, when is the church going to rise up and rebuild what I want it to look like? Rebuild a house of worship. Rebuild a house of prayer. Come on. Rebuild a house of presence where I can tabernacle once again among my people. How many want that? I love, I love, uh, I was, I was going to tell you this, and this almost sounds prideful, but there's nobody that I know, and I know a lot of people, there's nobody I know, and this is just me maybe being a little selfish, just pray for me. There's nobody that I know on earth who wants to see revival more than I do in my heart. I, I just, I, it keeps me up at night. I wake up sometimes four and five in the morning, and I'm crying about it. And, and you might think I just caught a bug, but the problem is, is it's happened to me for several years. And then my tears still haven't dried up. My tear ducts still are filled with tears. My heart is moved at the thought of God visiting his people. That's how you know what you're a child of. You know what stream you belong to? Is when you start thinking about that certain thing and you're moved to tears and your heart is moved. That's how I know I'm a child of revival. That's how I know many of you are children of revival. That's how I know James is a worshiper because every time I get around him, he don't want to talk about, you know, houses and he don't want to talk about his new job. He wants to talk about worship. Come on. And I thought to myself, there's only one disappointing thing I, I think about when I think of revival. One thing. I think to myself, why does every great revival die? You ever notice that? You think it's because God died? I wrote this down. And I believe I read this on our prayer night. I said, has God died? Or is it that our passion for God has died? Is God sleeping? Or have we fallen asleep like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus needed them most? Is God no longer moving? 
or have we stopped praying prayers that move his hand? So everything that we're seeing in the body of Christ in the world is not largely uh, due to what God is doing or not doing. It's what we are not doing or what we are doing. Amen? And so I believe that God is raising that up and he's seeking and the hour is coming. And I read that uh, this morning in John chapter 23, verse 24. But the hour is coming, Jesus said, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not looking for church attendees. He's looking for people who deeply are in love with him, who enjoy loving on him, who enjoy lingering in his presence, who don't enjoy announcements more than they enjoy his power and his presence, who don't enjoy just getting to a selfish sermon that helps us, that encourages us, although that is great, but enjoy being with him versus what's in his hand. And this is the key verse to revival. God rebuilding, returning and rebuilding the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. If you look around at different churches, and I, I put ourselves in this box as well, it's not hard to see that it's fallen down. If I can be honest with you, most times I leave this pulpit on Sunday morning, I cry. Because God is not looking for one person. He's looking for persons to roll up their sleeves and begin to rebuild something that's real and something authentic. Because you know what? He comes when he's really and truly welcomed. He comes when he's adored. He's come, he comes when he's sought after. He comes and visits people who are in passion for him. Amen? Lay your hand on your heart and say, God, give me that kind of heart. And, that's, and, and the key to that type of revival, listen, worship is the key to revival because revival, excuse me, because the key to God's heart is worship. Let me just say that again. Worship is the key to revival because the key to God's heart is worship. It's, it's what we do when, when we get together and we worship him and we love him. That's the only thing that gets God to stop and turn and I think about all the different churches. I'm like, Lord, let us be a company of people. I'm not worried about the church down the road, but let us be a company of people who worship you in such a way that would just turn your cheek just a little bit and cause you to lean your ear in and say, I want to visit them. They're truly welcoming me. They truly love me. There, there is a company of people who want to spend time with me. It is those that the Father is seeking in this hour. You know what I think? Worship is underrated. I said it's underrated. And I want to give you a few points and then I'm going to close it up. Are you ready? Why, why did God see it fit to say, this has disturbed me for weeks, why did he see it fit to want to rebuild the tabernacle of David? Why? Its main theme was worship, not religious rhetoric, not sacraments. Number one, because worship moves God. Because he wants to move among his people. Did you know that? Like I said before, it's not all the little accruedments that we go through and the duties that we do that move God. It is worship that moves God or pleases him. Say it pleases him. And we live in a generation that likes to please self. Come on, if we're honest, we choose churches based on whether or not it's got all of the accruedments to please me. Oh, you know, he's preaching now. 
whether it has the right children's ministry, whether it has the right worship flavor, whether or not it's got a pastor who doesn't stumble over his words. Oh, maybe I like the church that's got the, you know, the pastor's got the skinny jeans or I like the pastor who wears the, you know, the tuxedos. Come on, we choose things not based on whether or not God is there. Mainly, we choose things based on whether or not it fits my agenda or fits my lifestyle. Come on, somebody say amen. You know I'm telling the truth. And that's the reason most people listen to certain types of music because, it, because of the way that it makes them feel. Certain types of music because it moves them in a certain direction. And, and if, I'm, if I'm being honest, mainstream worship, and this is a shame to me, not all of it, not all of it, but most mainstream worship has catered to make people feel good. Worship was never designed to make people feel good. It was meant to glorify Jesus. But if we tear the veil back on all of that stuff, when you, when, you, when you build something that God honors, people will come. When you love Jesus well, who, you know, me and the team have had this conversation many times. We were talking about self songs and glorifying songs that glorify Jesus. Now, now let's be honest. Some of us, we like to sing some fun songs that are make us feel good. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's when that is out of balance. But when we say worship, we call worship if it just drops the name Jesus in the song. But if I'm being honest, many songs that I listen to today, I turn off the radio. Because I hear the name Jesus, but right after that, it's talking about how much I'm going to be blessed because of it. And God does want to bless you, no doubt. But when we seek first the kingdom, everything else gets added. First, when we seek him first, when we lift him up first. I love this scripture that says, and Jesus said this, and if I, Jesus, say Jesus, am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. I haven't learned this fully yet, but I am learning that while I've spent many years trying to fulfill my calling and my own desires, I'm finding out that my desires, as I've laid aside my agenda and simply pursued him, that all my desires are now being met. Do you see the difference? Because God sees the motive of our hearts. He knows if we love him. He knows if we show up on Sunday morning because we want a blessing versus just wanting to be with him. Now listen, you will get that thing as a result of being with him, but that should never be the reason for our pursuit. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? Seek first the kingdom. I wrote down this quote this morning. It'll shake some of you. It certainly shook me. It's a quote by Leonard Ravenhill. He said, America doesn't need God. He said, the church needs God. And America will soon feel it.
please God and you will be pleased. That's what the Holy Spirit shared with me. It's either yesterday or this morning. If you please God, you will be pleased. I used to think that pursuing all these accruements, all these things, work, ministry, business, it would fill something until I just kept hitting a wall and then I started pursuing him and then God caused all those things to succeed. And as soon as all those things started to succeed, it's like um, they didn't even matter anymore because only he matters. One day you'll take your last breath. One day. Doesn't matter if you're 12, doesn't matter if you're 20 or 70. One day you'll breathe your last. And you know the only thing that's going to last? What you did for Christ. The only thing that will be recognized in heaven is your lifestyle. And your lifestyle is worship. If you're, wor- if you're oh, thank you, that's so sweet, Lord. If your lifestyle was singing a song, what would the worship lyrics sound like? Secondly, and I want to get to these points. You guys came up here a little early on me. I was going to be like Pharaoh and hold people captive this morning just for a little while. Number two, worship changes us. It changes us. Worship and reading God's word for me has brought more change and transformation than I ever thought possible. Just reading the word makes you heady and religious gives you information. Worship brings transformation. I said it brings transformation, doesn't it, Tamaki? When, when, you, when you get into God's glory, when you exalt Him, when you love Him, and you go up, it changes you. It changes your mind. It changes your heart. It changes your perspective in situations even when the situation isn't changing because worship gives you the ability to come up to a place above the situation. That's what worship does. So this is why God is wanting to restore this tabernacle. Because what if God didn't change your situation? What are you going to do? The only other answer is to worship. And in worship, it will change your perspective. It will change your attitude. Do you know why the only reason that God began to restore Madi's marriage the way that she did? is because she stopped trying to change him. She stopped trying to change the situation and she says, God, no matter what, if you don't change my situation, I'm gonna go get changed. But the only place that's found is when you worship because when you worship, he comes. When he comes, you get touched. When you get touched, you get changed. When you get changed, you get transformed. And when a person, when a man or woman gets transformed by the presence of God that's found through worship, you will start changing families. You'll start changing a city. You'll start changing the environment. Stop complaining about that environment at your job and worship the Lord and get above that situation and let the power and presence of God begin to change you so that it changes those around you in the name of Jesus religion brings you closer to religion but worship brings you closer to Jesus which brings that kind of transformation that we need I love the way that Acts 4.13 lays this out in the Passions translation. I don't know if you guys have it back there, but I would love for it to be up on the screen. Watch this. I want you to think about this. All the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, those are the main three sects of those religions. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. 
And here's what they said about the disciples. Those disciples that some of them were zealots. They were fighters. Some of them were uh, not just zealots, but they were fishermen and tax collectors. Different backgrounds. Watch what is said of them. Just because they were close to Jesus with no seminary degree. Acts chapter 4. Verse 13, the council members were astonished. This is after Jesus' ascension. They were astonished as they witnessed the bold courage of Donnie. I mean, Peter and John and Rick. It says John. Especially when they discovered that they were just ordinary men who had no religious training. They began to understand the effect that Jesus had on them simply by spending time with him that's how you survive it Jane worship that's how we get elevated in the kingdom Matt we get elevated when we learn to worship him and, and, and be at and stay at his feet oh thank you Lord did you know that in your gifting and in your calling you know where we're to graduate to every year as you grow as a Christian you want to know where this is all I know, James. We are to never graduate from Jesus' feet. Never. It's our high calling. Yes, Lord. The lowly position is our high calling. Write that one down. Our, our lowly position in Jesus and worshiping the Lord is our high calling. Thirdly, and I'm almost done. You can stand to your feet. Is everybody okay? I love, this is why he wanted to restore the broken tabernacle of David. I love this one. This runs through my veins because it dethrones the enemy. That's what worship does. Do you know when I'm struggling in my thoughts? You know what I do? I don't call my friends. I worship. Yes, thank you, Lord. Worship dethrones the enemy. Do you know all evil thinking is a sign of? You know what the scripture says? It says that no evil can dwell in his presence. The reason why we struggle in our mind and struggle with sinful propensities is, is not because God doesn't love us. It's a sign that you haven't been in the realm of worship with him. Because that's the only, that's the only place the enemy can be loosed and do his operations. Why do you think the devil fights you for the first 15 and 20 minutes of worship? He wants to fight you and keep you from engaging in worship. Evil thoughts are a sign. Temptations are a sign that, not, that God doesn't love you. Why is the devil beating me up? Why Jesus is saying, why don't you come worship? Because all that stuff that you're dealing with right now, all those temptations, all those battles in your mind, they will dissipate and they will grow strangely dim if you'll come up higher, if you'll come and worship me. Because worship dethrones the powers of darkness. When I got set free from drugs and alcohol for so many years, do, do, you, know, do you know what I was doing? I was in a worship service. No man needed to lay his hands on me. Not that we don't need that once in a while. 
It didn't take anything but worship. But as soon as I got in the worship atmosphere of heaven, the heaven's atmosphere began to enthrone my heart and I began to change. I began to transform. I began to have my mind renewed. And this is the key. Do you know what? Yes. At my home, in both of my children's room, their radio never turns off from having worship. Do you want to know why? Because worship, thirdly, this is why he wants to restore the ruins. Because worship changes atmospheres. You keep asking God to change your atmosphere. You know what God's saying to you this morning? Worship. Because worship creates the atmosphere whereby God can come and dwell, then the change and transformation takes place. Can I read this last scripture to you? It's kind of long, but I feel it's worthy of reading because I need to, it's not just what I say or what I preach. It's what the word of God says. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 through 23, everybody say David's a worshiper. This is before he was king. And this is just coming to my mind just now. This, this is before he was king. He was still just a servant. I believe because he did this is the reason why God called him. But the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord departed from the first king, Saul. And a distressing spirit came upon him. This is a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player. Somebody say a worshiper. A skillful man who can play on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit of God is upon you and you shall be well. And Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. He was stressing out. See, that's why we listen to music when we're stressing. See? Anybody ever start worshiping and things begin to lift off of you? And so one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a man, the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome, a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, therefore Saul sent messengers to him, speaking of David, and he said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent him by the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it, they found David. And he loved him greatly because he was his ambassador. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, please let David come before me. So he found favor because he's found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever, watch this verse. And so it was whenever the spirit of God was upon Saul, that distressing spirit, that anxiety, that fear, that, that rage, that David would take his harp and play it with his hand. Come on, this is the Bible, guys. Then, the, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. You know what's going to get set, people, people set free in this hour, in this reformation that's about to happen in the body of Christ? 
worship. I believe that not just this church, but many churches are going to be known. This is why it shouldn't bother us to worship for one hour. You know why we do that? Because we're allowing the Lord to use us to restore the ruins. The tabernacle of David. So that because when people walk in here, they receive a touch. They don't have to have, even have to be prayed for. I believe that. I believe there's many testimonies that are going to be coming in of people who are bound. It doesn't matter with, with whatever it might be, drugs, alcohol, identity issues, sinful propensities, hereditary curses. I believe that as soon as they hear that worship from these Levites that the Lord is raising up among us, I believe that bondages will be broken, people will be healed, even in their body. In the name of Jesus, I declare that even prophetically, that such a wave of God's anointing and power and presence will come as a result of our worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm going to leave you with this and I close. I want to tell you why I'm so passionate about this. I've told this story once before. This was fairly recent within the past year. Tamaki knows I sent this dream to her. And I've had a couple visitations from the Lord in my life, but this was probably the most profound dream that I had because I know the Lord was giving me the DNA of this church. And I had a dream, Rick, I've never told you this. I had a dream and it was like we're standing here, like almost real, like I'm there. It was in an apartment. It was in an apartment. And I'm sitting there talking with, this is funny, this just came to my mind, a well-known worship leader. I don't want to tell you who it is because that doesn't matter. It was a well-known worship leader and it was a well-known minister. And we were talking about Jesus. We were just talking about him, laughing like giddy, like kids. And the, the minister gets up and he walks out of the room. And he comes back in the room. He walks outside of the front door. It was a small apartment. And he has a baby lamb in his hands a baby lamb the hair's not even on the lamb now we all know that Jesus is the lamb of God and he sits down with his lamb and he's petting the lamb and all the smells are there in the dream normally I don't smell in dreams but I you could you could all the textures were there you could smell the lamb you can all of my senses senses are heightened and then all of a sudden perhaps the most extraordinary weight of glory that I've ever felt in my life in that dream, I felt it in my sleep. We all were just weeping like babies. We, I, we couldn't, there was not a dry tear in the room. We were just weeping as we beheld the lamb. I just thought about this. David was a shepherd who took care of his father's lambs. And you know why God entrusted David with his presence? Because he could be trusted with the lamb. You know who God will not trust? Is those who rush him. Rush him through worship. I don't know about you, but I want, 
I want the glory of God to dwell here in such a way that it would not just transform our lives, but it would touch the city. I believe God can do that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this message impacted you today. If you'd like to support Ascension Christian Center, simply go to ascensionchristiancenter.com and click the gift tab or text ACCFL to 77977. Interested in hearing more? Check back weekly for new messages. Have a great day.